Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast, The Joyful Frugalista, and now here's your host, Serena Bird. This podcast is brought to you by The Joyful Fashionista, an online marketplace for buying and selling secondhand and sustainable clothing. Make cash selling as you declutter or buy sustainable and fabulous fashion. Yuma Frigalistas and welcome. Today I have a very special guest and of course all of my guests are special. But my guest today is someone who loves property perhaps even more than I do and he's going to be a wealth of knowledge when it comes to property investing. Before I introduce him, I have a favour to ask. If you love this podcast as much as I do creating it, please pay it forward by following it. Even better, share it with your friends and I really love comments. Your support is what motivates me to keep me going. My guest today is Luke Harris. Luke has an extraordinary depth and breadth of personal experience across business, property and investing, covering more than two decades. Today, Luke continues to grow significant wealth through his personal portfolio and for his clients at The Property Mentors, a Melbourne-based agency that helps clients develop the skills, mindset, and knowledge to grow their property portfolio. Luke's personal why is to help members reach financial freedom through property so they can go on to successfully fulfill their own dreams and ambitions. He is the author of Let's Get Real and Property Fit. And much of today's discussion is going to focus on property fit. Welcome, Luke. How are you today? Very good, thank you. How are you? Very well, thank you. (laughs) So the big question, how did you get into property and why property? Wow, that's a short answer and a long answer, I guess, to that one. I'll give you something in the middle. How I got into property and why, I guess, uh, when I was very young age, I saw some really nice homes around where I lived. And I thought, I want to live in one of those one day, live near the beach in Perth where I grew up. And a lot of beachfront houses had beautiful sunsets and things like that. And I thought, I've got to live in one of those one day. I and we love weren't it. Far from, weren't far from the beach, but uh, I wanted to be right on the beach. And so I figured, well, I need to be in property somehow. But as a, a teenager, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. So I really finished school and started work 16 and got a job in electronic security, running cables and things like that. And I kind of basically wanted to get an income so that I could go and buy a property because I really wanted to get my teeth stuck into renovating something and improving it because I was always fixing up mum and dad's house, not always with their permission, mind you. And, uh, <laughs> I thought it was slave labour, but it sounds like it was yeah, quite the reverse. No, it was the other way around. And they came home and I'm pulling up bathroom tiles and they're like, what are you doing? I'm renovating the bathroom. So I, I kind of... I guess why I got into property was more about a default passion for property and gardening and just getting my hands dirty, really. But uh, yeah, definitely inspired from a young age to to be involved in and around buildings. Wow. So this love of property has started from an early age. Very early age. And I had no idea why property was a thing. It wasn't really chasing money. It was just, I just loved, you know, fixing. I had gardens from age age 10, I think. I had a veggie garden and <laughs> You know, I was always out in the garden helping mum and dad mowing the lawns and things like that. So I was always very hands-on in the garden, but then obviously that moved inside when I started pulling the bathroom apart. So. <laughs> <laughs> Fabulous. And no regrets to with your love of property? None at all. No, I love it. Well, I want to talk a little bit about what's happened 
in the property market in Australia in recent years because it's really been quite phenomenal. And I know when I was reading your book, Property Fit, you were writing that book in 2020 during a very different time to what we see today. Yeah, absolutely. And the book was probably three quarters done at the start of 2020. Half of it had to be torn out and rewritten during 2020 because obviously it was a very, very uh, big shift and big change to not only the property market, but society in general. So a lot of what had been written, I'm glad we didn't publish it at the end of 2019 or the start of 2020 because it wouldn't have been relevant. So we did have to adjust quite a few things. Yes, quite an interesting change over the last couple of years for sure. Yeah, it was all doom and gloom during mid-2020, wasn't it? And people were really worried about their ability to retain people like renters and their ability to actually have people pay rent. And with good reason, when you look back at the Great Depression triggered by the 1929 stock market crash, You had a situation where you couldn't, as a landlord, get rent from a lot of your tenants because they just had no jobs. Well, that's it. A lot of commercial tenants are saying that at the moment in the capital cities in particular in Melbourne, where the lockdowns were extended for so long, a lot of commercial landlords just have not got any tenants anymore. So it depends on how prepared people were for that. A lot of people weren't prepared and, and weren't able to survive through that. But Definitely was a turbulent year, especially the first half where there was so much uncertainty, there was no vaccine. Yeah. Uh, and in particular in Victoria, with the, the huge lockdowns that we had at the time, it was just a very uncertain period. And that's often a time where people will sit on the sidelines, but it's also a time where people can take advantage of that uncertainty. Yeah, exactly. And I remember I wrote a blog post for a blogger called Late Starter Fire. It was myself and another contributor to examine this question about whether property was a good fit for people who were starting to grow their wealth a little bit later in life. In her case, a late starter fire started, I think, around about age 47. And I'm, I love property. So I was like, well, there's things to you know consider and things not to consider, but overall good. The other contributor was like, no, never, no, it's bad. Stay <laughs> away from it. And I've asked yeah. her, does she regret putting that piece out? And and no, and, and I'm raising this because a lot of people in the financial independence retire early space have traditionally said no to property and yes to, say, shares like ETFs and that anything to do with debt gets them quite scary. So what's your view on all of this? Well, I guess my view, there's always an investment for everybody. So I'm not here to convince everybody that property is the best investment or ETFs are bad or, or anything other than that. Essentially, my, my view with property is that it's not only an investment, but it's also a roof over people's heads. So it goes back to basics, food, clothing, and shelter. They're the three things that all human beings need. And of course, the shelter component of that allows us to borrow. And you've got to think when you go and buy a property, most of the time, people aren't putting 100% of their money in. So you might put 10 or 20% of the money in. The banks are actually putting in 80%. So the banks are the ones investing. You're just tagging along. And you might choose the property and get the loan. But the bank's putting most of the money in. So if the bank's willing to put such a large chunk of money in, that's showing the strength of the underlying asset. If the banks are happy to lend up to 90% even on a residential home, whether it's an apartment, townhouse or house and land, whatever it is, if the banks are putting 90% of their own money in, that gives me confidence that the underlying asset is good quality. Because, of course, if it was the other way around and I had to put 90% in and the banks would only put 10%, maybe then I'd be a little bit more worried. That's a good way of looking at it because it is, it's a bank or financial institution's ability to lend that really ultimately tells you whether it's a good investment or not, not the showy sales pitch. Well, that's exactly right. And you've got the way I look at it is I'm not the smartest person on the planet. Banks and finance lending uh, institutions 
they've got teams of, of lawyers and researchers and all sorts of people that, you know, in my view, are smarter than me. And they'll, of course, look at me as a risk and whether I'm a good risk for, for borrowing that money. But they'll also be looking at the property. And most property investors, they'll be looking at the property only. But you've got to think from the bank's perspective, they're putting most of the money in. They're not looking just at the property. They're also looking at you. So if they tick off the property as a good investment, fine. Then they tick off you. If they happen to lend you the money, most of the time it shows that you're onto a good thing. <laughs> That's a great way of looking at it. And as someone who's gone through the process so many times, what are some tips for people looking to get a loan to buy a property? Are there some things that you do that put you in a really good position to get a loan? Absolutely. Look, there's a number of things that when I was first starting out, I had two or three properties and I couldn't get any more. And this is what a lot of people get stuck with and why, why people get turned off by investing after a while is because their portfolio is not growing fast enough and they just they want to buy another property where the banks are saying no. And so many, you go on internet forums and all of that sort of part of the internet, if you want to delve into that, you can see all, all sorts of people uh, asking, how, I've got three properties, how do I get more? I want to keep buying and building the portfolio. The problem with that is that people are buying often the wrong properties and they're not fitting the properties into a long-term plan. And so people get stuck with finance because they haven't mapped out their finance plan and their finance strategy. And they haven't mapped out the property plan and the property strategy to go with that. For people starting out, I'd be recommending speaking to a mortgage broker that specializes in investor lending and going down the street to your local real estate agent's mortgage broker that sits there on the weekends may not be the best person to give you investment lending advice because buying a home, getting a mortgage broker or going to the bank, it's pretty easy to do. But if you want to build a property portfolio, you're going to need a broker that specializes in investor lending because it's quite a niche part of the mortgage lending space. And to build a property portfolio, you're going to need to make sure the properties you fit into that portfolio complement each other from a financial perspective and allow you to continue building that portfolio. That's great advice. So it's not just buying one, you're thinking about the whole empire as it builds. Well, that's it. And look, a lot of people don't need an empire. Some people, we've got uh, some of our members that are on $60,000 a year. They've got their third property now, and they might only need to buy one more property until they've got a position where they can plan on replacing their income. So it's not, you know, for me, it's an empire, I guess you could probably say. For some people, they don't need that. I guess it's about individualizing your plan and working backwards from that end plan. Even if you don't think you're ready to invest right now, having that conversation with the broker nice and early means that at least you know what steps you need to put in place. Get your ducks lined up is what I say. Yeah, that's so important, having a conversation early, especially for people who are first home buyers, the amount of times they're like, we've decided to buy a house. And I'm looking at that. I'm like, you've just come back from holidays. You've just bought a new car. Like at what point were you planning for this significant new purchase? Yep, often on a open for inspection on the weekend and they've signed a contract because the salesperson said that they can get finance for them. It, it happens more often than you would think. I've had friends that have come to me after being out for the weekend saying, we bought a house on the weekend. I said, have you spoken to a mortgage broker yet? Oh, no, we're doing that tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> you do that before. <laughs> you, you should yeah. do that before, yes, yes. And it's a good negotiating strategy too, because you always let slip to the real estate agent that, of course, you've already had a pre-approval and you are a solid contender. The amount of times I've bought a property where I haven't been the highest off, made the highest offer, but I've been the most credible offer. Yes. And, and that's the thing is that knowing, knowing your finance capacity, knowing your borrowing capacity before you go in to put a property contract in place is extremely powerful and it can save you tens of thousands of dollars. Well, there's a tip right there of how you can save tens of thousands of dollars. And we haven't even got to the frugalist tip yet. 
There we go. <laughs> so obviously we were talking before about these last couple of years have just been crazy. It's this boom we've seen particularly in the last year and a lot of people who've bought spontan just bought out of a whim pretty much or perhaps out of fear as they've seen the, the market rising. There are interest rates that are forecast to rise. Do you have any advice for people who might have been in that situation of buying something, maybe paying a bit more than they had expected on, on a hot market? Yeah, so it depends on where you've bought and how much you've overpaid. We've been pretty lucky with a lot of the, the research that we do. We make sure that we're actually buying, still buying below market. And even in markets that are a little bit overheated, we've been able to get some amazing deals for our members. But for people that sort of may or they feel like they may have stretched uh, themselves a little bit far, the best conversation that you can have is with your broker. And obviously, if you're living in the property and you're paying the mortgage yourself, speak to your broker nice and early and discuss that if you find that you could be having some financial difficulty. It's better to have the conversation than not have the conversation. So always be open and transparent. If you think that there's a problem on the horizon, don't wait for the problem to happen and then try and fix it afterwards. It's a lot easier to fix it before it happens. The other thing as well is if you are an investor and you've got uh, tenants in there, make sure you speak to your property manager on a regular basis to find out if there's any adjustments that can be made. I've got a uh, situation, I've got some properties in WA at the moment and just yesterday, there's six properties, six apartments all in the same block and the property manager contacted me and says, hey, we're putting the, the rents up a little bit. One of the tenants has come back saying, well, I shouldn't pay more because I've got no air conditioning and all the others do. And so I went back to the property manager and said, well, let's put air conditioning in for her if that's what she wants. So we're going now to put back the air conditioning in there and keep the tenant happy. And also we're allowed, we're able to put the rent up by an extra $10 a week because of that. So all of those little conversations about how can you improve the portfolio, those little things that can, can really help you to keep the portfolio going could mean the difference of an extra 10 or $15 a week. So it might be something simple that the tenant wants. They might want a security door. They want the back gate fixed. These aren't necessarily big costs a lot of the time, but it will keep the tenant happy. And it means that when they, when it comes time to do a rental increase, it might just be enough to keep the property in your in your control. What I'm hearing here is that you are far from being a slumlord, that you're someone who takes your landlord <laughs> um, responsibility seriously. And I'm saying this because people in Australia particularly love to hate a landlord. Well, I think that that's true to a certain extent. It's partly driven by the the back and forth with governments arguing about <laughs> negative negative gearing and, and that political football or hot potato, whatever you want to call it. But I think the, the thing is, is that the rental markets have changed over the last 20 years and people are living in rental properties for longer and people are choosing to rent rather than buy. And there's a big shift in people, especially a millennial uh, generation coming through that people just, they're saying that don't want to buy a home. Uh, like you were saying earlier, is people that have this different approach to to finance and investing and uh, having enough money just to pay for your lifestyle needs and not really having any intention at all of buying a house. So from that perspective, the rental market and the tenant market has changed dramatically. People aren't looking to rent the crappy old house at the street where everybody knows that's the rental. Where I, When I was growing up, in any street you would drive past as I rode my bike to school, you would know which ones are the rentals. They were the really run down, poorly looked after ones. And so people now have, have accepted the fact that maybe I'm not going to buy a home. I'm happy to rent. I want to be a little bit more mobile. It's not because years ago it used to be financially people couldn't afford to buy. Now people might be able to afford to buy, but they're choosing to to rent because they can move and change jobs and do whatever they want to do. And especially now post-COVID, we're going to see a lot more people probably renting and having that flexibility because they can work from anywhere. They might live in Perth for a year, they might live in Brisbane for a year, who knows, they might 
live in Italy for a year. And because they, <laughs> because they can work from home, they're, they're happy to rent and just move around. And that really is going to change things a little bit. But at the end of the day, tenants are a little bit more demanding than they used to be before. And they want to have nice carpets and air conditionings and dishwashers and things that work. Uh, and they don't want to have work. <laughs> things, things, things that work. And, I'm and, laughing because here in the ACT, it is a requirement. If you let out a house and you say, oh, the dishwasher's never worked, but are you okay with that? And they say, yeah, sure. There's a dishwasher there and they come back in six months and say, I want a new dishwasher. You have to put it in. Absolutely. And so you should too, because I think tenants are, tenants are looking for these really basic amenities. I mean, a dishwasher is really considered a basic amenity these days. Air conditioning, heating and cooling that works, hot water systems that work, all of the basic things that you would expect. If there's flushing to- uh, toilets that don't flush and there's issues with things like that, they have to be fixed. And of course, the legislation around this, there was huge changes in about May last year in Victoria and all of the other states are starting to follow suit. And these are the biggest uh, rental reforms for the last decade or more. That means that the, the overall quality of investment properties or rental properties in Victoria has to improve. So safety standards, fire and smoke standards, and just general standards for the quality of properties. Gone are the days where you could rent out your your demolition site that has holes in the floor and dangerous handrails and things like that. You, you can't do that anymore. You're just not going to get away with it. And finding a property manager that will take on that property is going to get harder and harder. So the overall quality is is improving and tenants have got a lot more protections than they ever have before around the country. And that's only going to increase and get more strict as time goes on. I think it makes good business practice as well. Like I think when you are acting with integrity as a landlord, you will attract good tenants to you and you'll attract good property managers because who wants to to be a property manager for a landlord who refused to do basic maintenance? Well, exactly. And the, the risk is actually on the property manager. The property manager knows that their landlord isn't isn't fixing especially safety items then that can come back on on them for not for not doing that. So a lot of the time people will find their property managers just going to send them a nice letter and say, sorry, we can't manage the property for you. And so the, that whole market is changing. And I think that it is good to be proactive. If you look after your tenants, they're going to stay in the property longer. They're going to enjoy being there. Some of my tenants have been in, in those properties for six or seven years or more. And when they need something, it's not because they're trying to to get something out of us. They're just saying, hey, the carpet's looking a bit messy or can we, can we get some new paint on, on the property? And some of the tenants have actually asked if they could paint the properties themselves. Wow. Have they done a good job? One example, we actually bought the paint for them. We got them a Bunnings voucher actually and said, here, you buy the paint with our Bunnings voucher and then you can go and paint it yourself. And they got to choose the colours and they put new curtains up and all of those sorts of things. And they're, they're more than happy. That was about three or four years ago now. And they're still there and they love it and they're happy they could paint some of the walls blue and they're treating it as their home. And I think that's what some investors need to understand. It's, it's actually somebody's home. It's not just an investment mm-hmm. on its own. That's a really good point. It is actually someone's home. There's real people who live in that property. That's it. It's, it's easy to look at the numbers. And as investors, we should just look at the numbers. But of course, there is that human element that you have to be aware of. And, and you have to be able to manage the relationships both with your, your tenant and your property manager. Mm, exactly. These are all important. I want to go back to the elephant in the room that you mentioned before, and that is negative gearing. Gee, that gets a bad rap. For a long time, like a lot of the literature on property investing sort of was like everything needs to be, you know, positive cash flow. Everything needs to be positively geared. And I was quite relieved in your book that you had some really sound advice on this. What do you do personally and what do you advise your clients in relation to negative and positive gearing? 
Yeah, look, I, I don't know about an elephant in the room. Maybe it, maybe it is. I don't know. But um, <laughs> I think for some people it, it is, and it's, it is a political thing, negative gearing and whether yeah. we're giving tax, tax, tax benefits to property investors and these greedy landlords. You know, I think at the end of the day, what it comes down to is that, well, there's a couple of points to, to cover, but essentially if, if property investors like you and I didn't have investment properties, if you look at the, the state housing or, or commission, state com- housing commission houses around the country, they're not the best quality. Being a landlord, the government is not very good at. If it wasn't us doing that, then the government would be responsible for doing that. There's got to be some incentive for the private sector to invest in, in residential property. Otherwise, the government's responsible for doing it. Somebody has to provide rental accommodation and there has to be an incentive to do that. So if you're a business owner and you've got a car or a laptop or a mobile phone, you can depreciate those items because you need those to generate your income. The same way with negative gearing, an investor has mortgage expenses, they've got interest costs, and of course, they've got rates and insurance, repairs and maintenance, (laughs) and and all of the things that go with that. And of course, then purchasing the property itself. And these are all expenses the same way a business owner has expenses as well. So it's not fair to sort of suggest that a business owner can claim all of the expenses they need to generate their income, but a property investor can't claim the expenses that they need to generate their income as well. And so really, that's a government argument that's going to continue until the world ends one day. The government's always going to disagree on that. It's always going to be a hot topic. And it's an election year this year, so I'm waiting to see whether this comes up again. Yes, I've got my comments on that as well, which we'll, we'll talk about. But I think from, from my perspective, in reality, negative gearing really is just a tax treatment. It's not a property. Positive gearing is not a property. And positive geared property is not a property. It's a tax treatment. So let's say, for example, we're looking at two properties side by side. We've got one property that's negatively geared, one property that's positively geared. For example, the positively geared one, I might have put down a 30% deposit. And the negatively geared one, I might have just put down a 5% deposit, got a 95% loan. So therefore, my interest cost goes up. They're rented for the same amount, but because I've put more money into this one, of course, it's becoming positively geared. Yeah. So that's just the tax treatment of this. And you could have two properties side by side. One's an older property, one's a new property. The new property, they're rented for the same, they cost the same. The new property is going to give you tax depreciation benefits where you can claim that as a loss on your tax as well, which might turn that property into a positively geared property at the end of the financial year. And so the tax treatment is really going to change. And the thing is that people might have a positively geared property because over time, the property is going to go up in value. The rent's going to go up in value over time. So it becomes positively geared. Now, if I refinance and pull out $100,000 of equity from that property, it might go back to becoming negatively geared. And so that's a tax treatment based on the financial situation of the property, not the property. I can never drive down the street and go, that's negatively geared property. <laughs> that's a positively geared property. So I, I think that actually, I think the, the, the terminology gets thrown around quite a bit in the media. It gets thrown around quite a bit by, you know, I guess, property companies talking about positive and negatively geared. And, and, you know, there's people who say, don't ever buy a property unless it's positively geared. And this is the, you should never buy negatively geared. But it really comes down to your own financial situation. And so nobody should really be taking investment advice from general information. Of course, our conversation today, nobody should be taking investment advice from this conversation. This should Great. all be. I forgot to do uh, the disclaimer, yeah, so we'll reiterate that. Okay. This is not yeah, financial advice. No, it's not. <laughs> uh, look, this, this really, this is general information. And you should just be discussing your own situation with your own advisors, your own broker, your own accountant and financial planner. And of course, your property mentor, if you've got one. 
but making sure that you've got your own tailored plan. Don't just listen to the general information that's out there. It's general information for a reason. And you'll hear people talking about negative and positively geared properties. Until you know how those properties affect Mm. your own personal situation, then you shouldn't be making any decisions on that. I think these are really important things to discuss. And my own experience is, yes, it's very easy to have a negatively geared property. You just spend too much money on it and you get a, a not particularly good product from a bank and pay too much back on it. And bingo, you have a negatively geared property. We did actually buy a positively geared property in December 2017. And I say that because I was a bit shocked when I did the numbers that it, it did add up. Now, the property itself was terrible. Like when I remember walking in for the inspection and someone walked out before me shaking their head and laughing about how bad it was. Now, the tenants were quite happy there. It was a a low-income area. But we sold it actually last year for various reasons, mainly because we knew that it would need essential renovations and we were no longer at that stage where we wanted to do it. But on paper, it was a great investment, but a lot of people wouldn't look at it because it didn't look nice. Yes. Yeah, there's there's plenty of uh, plenty of the ugly duckling properties out there, and <laughs> some of my properties, the ugly duckling ones that don't have necessarily a great street appeal, mm-hmm. they're performing really well. Again, this is why you can't essentially judge a book by its cover, and both you and I've written books with really nice covers, but mine's pink. <laughs> um, but you can't judge a book by its cover, and essentially that's why people look at a property and they go, "I don't like it," or you know, needs work. But sometimes when you look at the numbers, you find that 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 property is actually going to perform well because if people aren't interested in buying it, it means that you can negotiate on your price. So sometimes that can be a good outcome. At the same time, obviously in my book, Property Fit, we're talking about fitting the property into your overall plan. And to take on a property like that, that needs repairs and maintenance, that can be a cash flow drain that can actually stop you from buying the next one or from doing other things. So always need to be mindful of the the financial commitment and the time commitment for a property like that. Yeah, well, or, or thankfully it wasn't a money pit, but we have now sold it. But I want to ask a final question, and that is, do you have a frugalista tip? A frugalista tip. Look, one of the probably best tips that I can give is is negotiating. Mm. Now, I know we've, we've sort of talked about a, a bunch of different tips. I've probably got 100 tips if I sat down for an hour, I could go through. But negotiating is something that can give you a really good hourly rate. Let's say, for example, if you know how to negotiate on a property, for example, let's say at your job, you might earn $40 an hour at your job. And negotiating on a property, if you can, if you know how to negotiate and you know what the vendor is trying to achieve and you can create a win-win situation, then negotiating can be one of the highest paying jobs out there. Mm. And if you, if, you, if you know, for example, if you know the vendor situation and there's ways of finding out how to, to get that information, extract that information from the, from the agent, if you know the vendor situation and you can put together a deal that actually links up with the vendor situation, they might be looking for a fast settlement. And if you're in a financial position to be able to offer a fast settlement, that's something that you can offer and you know, potentially save tens of thousands of dollars so just by learning how to negotiate and how to put and structure a deal together can save you tens of thousands of dollars. And that can all be done in the space of half an hour where your hourly rate could be $10,000 or $20,000 versus $40 in your job. So that's that's definitely a tip for, for people. The other tip of I was going to add a second one would be to get on top of your finances and know where your money is. Mm. Know where your money goes. And if you're not doing a budget, make sure that you do have a budget. Know where your money goes. And don't spend more than you earn. Well, the banks are going to ask you for your budget when you buy a property. 
they're going to ask you for this. So it's good to have one before they ask and to be able to demonstrate that you are actually following that. Having it is one thing, like you said, following it is the key. You've got to make sure that you're following it. And, and if, you, if you're not spending more than you earn, then, then you should be fine. But of course, knowing where your money goes, knowing where your money is and where it goes is a huge step because a lot of people just go day to day, week to week, month to month, and they find that they're not getting ahead. It's because you don't analyze where your money is. If you're not reviewing it, you can't improve it. Mm. So take that time out. You give your employer or your business 40, 50 hours a week. Give yourself half an hour a week just to go through your finances, get an understanding of where your money's going. Learn where your super is. Super has now gone up to 10%. It's going up to 12%. So a significant portion of, of people's wealth and long-term financial planning is sitting in their super. Know where your super is. Know where it's invested. Learn about those things. Talk to your financial planner. Talk to your accountant. And maybe a few tweaks now could give you some insane results in 5, 10 or 15 years' time. So learn about these things that you're already doing and that can give you some amazing results. Just to recap, know where all these things are to get insane results. And, of course, we all want insane results. Thank you so much, Luke, for being my guest. So how can people find you? Two ways. You can go to thepropertymentors.com.au and you can find the book, propertyfitbook.com.au. Lovely. Thank you so much once again. Thanks, Serena. Appreciate your time. You've been listening to The Joyful Frugalista with Serena Bird. And of course, sound has been by Neil Hadley.
is where 